All right. Uh, thank you all for, uh, for coming. Um, uh, this is the U.S. left panel, so I actually assumed that the rest of you would not be interested in the U.S. left because you have a much more, a larger and even more vibrant left here, but I'm glad you all uh, made it out. Um, I, my name is Bosco Sankar, and I'm the uh, editor and publisher of Jacobin. Uh, Jacobin was founded uh, eight years ago, actually eight years ago this month, in the U.S. Uh, at the time, it was a very, uh, it was being a socialist in the U.S., like one of my friends says, was equivalent to being a kind of um, in a magic, you know, the card game a club. And he knew that because he was actually a member of both. Um, <laughs> and uh, little did he know that socialism um, would be the club that made him cool. Um, and um, for me, um, one of the initial goals of Jackman was to take the democratic socialist ideas that I learned in DSA. I joined Democratic Socialist America, DSA, about 10 years ago. When I joined, there was five, 6,000 people. And a lot of what DSA was about then was a generational transmission of ideas from members that were in their uh, 60s and 70s uh, to the one or two young people that would come to these events and, uh, and would uh, come to chapter meetings. So a lot of it, a lot of what I conceived, Jacobin, was in a very defensive way. We'll keep alive some ideas, we'll try to make them accessible, we'll try to make them relevant, and hopefully one day in the future, 30, 40 years, these ideas will have a rebirth. That was kind of my mentality. And little did I know, uh, thanks in large part to the people on the stage with me now, that uh, socialism, democratic socialism, will once again be a vibrant force in the United States. Um, and we're still struggling, uh, like the ILP's manifesto, like the 30s said, for socialism in our time. And uh, for the first five, six years of Jacobin, I was thinking more about socialism in the next generation. So it's a very exciting period to be on the US left. Of course, um, in many ways, it's the, the good news is that it's the best time to be a democratic socialist in the US since maybe the 1970s. The bad news is it's still probably a pretty bad time to be a democratic socialist. <laughs> it's still pretty difficult. Um, so um, I'll leave my introduction to that. Um, and I'll uh, introduce uh, our, our panelists, uh, starting with uh, Lee Carter, who's a delegate in the uh, Virginia House of Delegates. He's the only socialist in the House of Delegates in Virginia. The only socialist ever in the House of Delegates in, in Virginia. Um, uh, then there's Julia Salazar, who's fresh off her victory in a primary election. And Julia is an incoming state senator from New York, which is among the most important states in the United States. I would say the most important, but uh, I just happen to be from New York. In fact, we are, we're like third, we're actually now fourth in population. People keep moving to Florida, I don't know why. People don't like the winter. Um, and finally, there's Alexandra Rojas, who's the executive director of Justice Democrats. And Justice Democrats is the organization that played an important role in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's um, campaign. Uh, they kind of recruited her. Uh, they uh, built a lot of infrastructure in the campaign and combined with DSA canvassers and activists, led her to this upset victory that was all over the news. I was in India at the time with very sporadic internet and at times electricity. 
And the news, like people were asking me about it. So the news was really um, all over the place because the victory was over uh, a longtime um, incumbent Democrat who uh, many people thought would be uh, leading the uh, Democratic kind of uh, um, a caucus in the House of Representatives. So it was really exciting. Uh, she was also, um, uh, she was a staffer in that, in that campaign and she was also involved in the Sanders uh, 2016 campaign, the campaign that really um, revived a lot of the, the hopes of, of a left and a left populism and a democratic socialism in the United States. So what I'll do is I'll uh, just pose a few, uh, a few questions uh, to the panelists and we'll keep their answers short and we'll uh, open up time for questions and discussions. So the political context in the US, it's not a one-to-one. -one. You know, Sanders isn't Corbyn and the Labor Party isn't even the new left-wing insurgents running within the Democratic Party. So it's very different. I imagine there'll be a lot of questions, so we'll try to keep it, uh, keep it uh, as, as brief as, as possible. Um, we only have three mics, uh, so we'll have to pass them along, I guess. But, um, but to begin with, I was wondering whether everyone could make, I guess maybe starting with Lee and then going this direction, kind of a, an introduction about how you first came to maybe the left in general or democratic socialists and, and, and democratic socialism in particular, in that in the United States, you know, the politicization seems so random because there was really no structures, no organizations to, to bring us to these ideas. So I think everybody has an unusual, uh, unusual story. Yeah, so um, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, you know, one thing to understand about the left in America is that the overwhelming majority of us are recent converts, right, myself included. Um, you know, I was raised in a small town in North Carolina um, and, you know, what goes along with that is, is being raised with some incredibly reactionary views in, in a lot of cases. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a very, very common story. Uh, and, and even for people that are, that are on the left, that, you know, they were raised one way and, and uh, once they, uh, you know, reached adulthood and, and actually got out there and started living their lives, they realized that, that the way they were raised was just completely divorced from reality. Um, and so... You know, through through my adult life, you know, once I sort of got out from under the umbrella of my parents, uh, I had considered myself uh, to be a Democrat, but generally dissatisfied with uh, the way that the Democrats acted when they were in power. You know, I never really understood why um, why things like the Affordable Care Act happened. Right? You know, we had in 2008 we had a president who ran on a promise of, of essentially universal health care. Uh, and, you know, people voted for him in overwhelming numbers. They voted for Democrats in Congress in overwhelming numbers. And we got the Republican plan for an alternative to universal health care instead. You know, why, why did we get the Republican alternative when we clearly voted for Democrats? Um, and so I was just sort of dissatisfied um, and not really, not really a very political person for a long time. You know, I would argue with people on the Internet, but... That's about it. I still argue with people on the internet, which I shouldn't because I use my own name. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, for years and years and years, that was it. You know, I would show up every couple of years. I would pull the lever and vote uh, for Democrats and then be upset at the status quo. Um, and what really got me to start 
moving towards the left was uh, a few years ago when I got hurt at work. Uh, I got an electric shock, and you know, thankfully it didn't stop my heart, but I messed my back up pretty bad pulling away from the panel that shocked me. Uh, and the workers' compensation system in Virginia just completely failed. Uh, you know, I was, my doctor bills were not paid. Uh, my disability was not paid. Uh, and in the end, I got fired, and there was absolutely no repercussions whatsoever for my former employer uh, for treating me that way. There still haven't been. Um, you know, litigation is still pending, but you know, that, was, that was three years ago. It was the summer of 2015. Uh, and it was that experience that, that got me interested in state-level politics. I said, all right, you know, the workers' compensation system is completely broken. Where do I go to, to fix that? So I went to delegates and senators in my area, and I said, you know, what are you going to do about workers' comp? And nobody had an answer. Um, I mean, I think I had one person actually tell me that they didn't have any polling data on workers' comp. And I'm, I don't care. I don't care if you have polling data on it. It's broken, fix it. Um, so that's when I decided to run for office myself. I said, you know, if, if nobody else is gonna do this, I will. Um, and, you know, when I started running, I was still in that mindset of, you know, dissatisfied with the Democrats, but I didn't really have a framework to explain why. Um, you know, I declared, for the November 2017 elections, I actually declared my candidacy on February 1st of 2016. I mean, we still thought that the presidential election was going to be Clinton and Bush. Like, it was a long time ago. Um, and, you know, it was right around that time that the, the Bernie Sanders campaign was really kicking off. That was really starting to pick up steam. Uh, and here was this guy going around the country saying things that just made sense, like making clear, convincing, moral arguments that the system we have is inherently broken, uh, and calling himself a socialist. And I went, all right, you know, let me go ahead and Google, what is socialism? <laughs> uh, and from there, you know, I started reading sort of the, the canonical works of the left. Uh, you know, I started reading uh, folks like, you know, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon and Daniel DeLeon, and uh, I started, you know, watching some, some contemporary uh, folks out there like Professor Richard Wolff. Uh, you know, I started listening to his podcast. I started reading Jacobin Magazine. Uh, don't, don't get too full of yourself there, Bosker. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that it sort of, uh, it, it was a process of self-education while I was running for office of learning about this history of the political left that has been intentionally purged from American uh, political conversations. Um, you know, learning the history of state repression of the left in America uh, and the history of our, you know, incredibly violent, bloody labor wars that we had from essentially the 1870s to the 1930s. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I just identified more and more and more with uh, the idea that I am a socialist. And I started going to DSA meetings, I started paying dues, um, and what really solidified it for me uh, was the attack on Charlottesville in August of 2017. Um, you know, that, that hit very close to home. You know, I had comrades from my, my DSA chapter who were 400 feet away. Um, so, you know, as soon, as soon as that happened, I realized there was there was no turning back, right? Uh, you know, that's when I realized that um, the system that we have, the discontent that, that capitalism breeds among people, um, 
leads to conflict like this. And if we don't move past capitalism, we will never move past this cycle of resurgent fascism and then beating that back and then it coming back again. And uh, here we are now. Thank you, Lee. Um, that was really inspiring. Uh, I, um, on the other hand, I was, I was raised in a conservative home um, in South Florida. Uh, by, my, my father was a Colombian immigrant and um, to, to an American mom. Um, uh, and, you know, I, my family was not very politically active, but the ideas that I was exposed to growing up were very, you know, reactionary, conservative. Uh, Fox News was always on on this little TV in our kitchen, you know, um, and uh, that, you know, I, I naturally adopted those politics, uh, even though I always, uh, as I was growing up, kind of had this sense, this cognitive dissonance that, that these ideas, that this ideology was actually against my self-interest. Um, as, a, as a worker, especially, that I, I started working when I was 14 and um, worked in the service industry through high school, ultimately went to college and uh, became, I was a domestic worker, a nanny for a family, um, and, as, and I you know, cleaned apartments to supplement my income. Um, and it, it was through my lived experience um, as a worker and ultimately as, as an organizer around social justice issues and labor issues in college, um, in addition to receiving a comprehensive political education that I eventually, um, I, had, I experienced this political transformation and a leftward shift uh, that, that was you know, steady throughout my time in college. Uh, my, my earliest organizing experience that um, I think really served to, to teach me what solidarity really meant um, and, uh, and played a big role in my political development was organizing my own building. Um, I, lived in, I lived in an apartment building that was managed by a really abusive management company, didn't adequately heat the building in the winter, uh, neglected to make really urgent repairs that uh, myself and many of my neighbors had been waiting a really long time for, um, and eventually, you know, I, I didn't have um, organizing training at the time, uh, but I, you know, did a little bit of research and determined that we could legally withhold our rent, right? Also known as a rent strike, <laughs> but I didn't know, I didn't have the language for it at the time, and I just talked to my neighbors and um, and my roommates, and I said we're going to withhold our rent. Um, in order to, you know, have leverage um, and and make the management company finally meet our demands. And we did that. Um, and actually, after a few months, it took a few months for the management company to realize we weren't paying rent, which is amazing to me. Like, I, I realized I wasn't paying rent. <laughs> um, <laughs> but after a few months, they finally realized that we weren't paying rent. And, uh, you know, we had to go to housing court. And I showed up to housing court with this, like, folder of, of everything, just documenting all of the con conditions in the building and our attempts to correspond with the management company. 
Um, and we actually were able to force the management company to settle with us. We didn't have to, to um, pay back any of the rent and they were forced to make repairs. Um, and that was... And uh, it, may, it may seem small, but it was, it was a huge victory for us. And um, for me, it was very uh, empowering to see that, that organizing have a real impact on, on my life and my neighbors' lives. Uh, at the same time, this of course was not a systemic change. Uh, it, it was only a matter of months before I was actually forced out of my apartment because uh, we didn't live in a, in a rent-stabilized apartment. Uh, naturally, they did not invite me to renew my lease, <laughs> and so I got I uh, was was forced out, um, and it really was the first indicator to me, you know, it's it's so important that we organize with our neighbors, um, but additionally, we need some systemic solutions to systemic problems like you know the affordable housing crisis. Um, and that sort of propelled me into legislative advocacy. Uh, by this point, it was around 2014 that uh, I started to, I think, identify as a socialist, but that didn't necessarily have implications in my, in my life at that point. Um, Bhaskar's ego is going to be huge after this panel. Uh, we, I actually was, um, I was originally connected to the Democratic Socialists of America through Jacobin reading groups in Brooklyn, um, <laughs> really, and um, uh, the, yeah, that's how I got involved in the DSA, and it was around summer of 2016 that uh, another Democratic Socialist candidate was running in my district in North Brooklyn. Uh, her name is Debbie Medina, she's a Latina tenant organizer running against, uh, with, you know, the DSA was not very big at the time, uh, this was pre 2016 presidential election, so there, we hadn't experienced this massive exponential membership boom yet, uh, and so here was an or, a community organizer, tenant organizer, uh, running in South Williamsburg, uh, not taking any real estate money, and running unapologetically as a democratic socialist. Uh, so I volunteered on her campaign and was really inspired by it. Um, ultimately, she didn't win against the incumbent, but uh, uh, it was it was a really valuable campaign uh, for the community and, and for me personally, um, and I it, it's what got me involved in the DSA. Uh, so I've now been an active member of DSA for a couple years, um, and it was early and and became involved in other electoral campaigns for Democratic Socialist candidates through DSA. And early this year. Um, I was working full-time as a community organizer, mostly on police accountability and criminal legal reform work. Uh, and some friends in the DSA approached me and they said, someone needs to run against Delan, Senator Delan, the incumbent, uh, for uh, 16 years. Um, and I just said, yes, yeah, someone needs to run against Delan. And they're like, you're not getting it. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it. Um, but over the course of a couple of months, um, a bunch of friends who uh, were, you know, my comrades in DSA and apparently in the same group chat telling each other, you know, have you, have you asked Julia to run? Um, they, they persuaded me to run. And I was terrified. 
Um, and also, it was sort of counterintuitive to me because um, I'd been a legislative advocate. My job was really to agitate legislators. Um, but, uh, and, and here I was finding myself potentially on the other side. Um, but it, it, was, it was a really important moment. I knew it was a winnable race, and, um, and I knew the importance of, of us finally getting socialists elected to office. And, um, and that's, how I ended up, that's how I ended up running. <laughs> um, to fast forward, because I can talk more about the campaign in, uh, in a bit, perhaps, but um, uh, we, we mobilized thousands of people and ultimately uh, won the Democratic primary and are sending um, a socialist to the state Senate for the first time in, I think, like, like 100 years, almost. <laughs> um, <laughs> working. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm so inspired to be on the panel with these uh, elected and soon-to-be elected uh, socialists, which is pretty crazy. Um, uh, my story is pretty straightforward. Bernie, 2016. I, um, you know, uh, the term democratic socialism and similar to, I think, the backgrounds of you guys, I was not necessarily apolitical, but I wasn't um, involved the context of politics for me was to pay attention to see how it would impact my family, right? Um, and uh, that, that was sort of my frame of reference. It was a lot more cynical. Uh, and it wasn't until I got involved with Bernie uh, that I, you know, even heard those terms. It just wasn't something that was in, in my frame of reference. Um, and I think, you know, um, I think that's most people, at least in America, right? It's very different than over here where I feel like democratic socialism seems to be very much in the mainstream. Uh, and so the fact that even the past two years, we've come so far as to even be invited to be here is massive for the United States. Um, and so I think that's sort of the beautiful part about our movement is that we're able to um, sort of understand these things, you know, like the things that I care about um, is that every person, every child, every man, every woman uh, in America, but obviously across the world, has the basic needs met, right, at a bare, bare minimum. And that's something that you don't necessarily need to provide an ism or a term for. It's just something that uh, you want and you strive for. And so um, that's sort of how I came into democratic socialism. Uh, my background prior to 2016 was uh, working full-time, uh, going to school full-time, working multiple jobs, and, uh, you know, I at, coincidentally at the time wasn't able to um, afford to go to the university that I wanted. Uh, as you guys have probably heard from abroad, the U.S. Uh, <laughs> university system isn't very fair. Uh, and uh, I heard Bernie speak uh, in really plain and simple terms to the values and things that I cared about. And I'm not gonna lie, he was talking about free college. And <laughs> uh, that was something that, that at the time was really important to me. And the same thing with healthcare, right? Um, we, have, uh, we have the Affordable Care Act in the United States, but it's not enough. Um, and uh, you know, my, a lot of my family members fall between not being able to, they're not poor enough, right? To, to be able to get into the sort of base level of healthcare that we have in the US and they're not, um, so they're sort of trapped in the middle 
Um, so those were some of the reasons why I got involved. Um, it was Bernie, very simple. So, so just just a brief um, a brief follow up, uh, I guess especially for for Julia and Lee. Um, so we, we all we call each other we call uh, our politics democratic socialism. But what would you say to someone who's saying, well, Bernie called himself a democratic socialist because that's what he started calling himself in the '60s in a different era, and he just hasn't dropped it because he hasn't dropped his commitment. But for a new generation, can't we express the same sort of moral and ethical uh, you know, ideas with a different word. And just in general, ha have you found it to be an uphill battle? Like I imagine, uh, I'm very close to your, your, your district, but in you know, Brooklyn now with, with it moving leftward and lots of young DSAers, but also with like, large immigrant communities, like you know, a lot of my family's West Indian and like socialism isn't that unusual. You know, they're like, oh, you're not a radical, you're not a communist. You know, like that's, that's their, uh, their background. Like, um, uh, you know, is it, is it worth the struggle, to, to use a word? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, that Bernie Sanders, the Bernie Sanders campaign really normalized the term socialism, um, or at least comparatively in the U.S., but it, it still is uh, a little bit sensationalized. Um, maybe not. That's cool that your parents are like, don't think socialism is radical, <laughs> but um, but I I uh, found that usually like when I was running as a democratic socialist, people um, especially especially the press when asking me about it were were they assumed that that in my overwhelmingly working class um, pretty demographically diverse district um, and with a with a one of the biggest immigrant populations um, of any of any other district in New York City, um, they expected that people would be turned off by the term democratic socialism. Um, maybe because it would be perceived as radical, but at least that it wouldn't be familiar. Um, uh, but that isn't what we found at all. Um, in In knocking on hundreds of thousands of doors, we found that people were really unfazed by the term democratic socialism and what what was more important to people was that we were having meaningful conversations about the issues that affect people's everyday lives that we were talking about healthcare about universal healthcare finally having single payer across new york state making that a reality uh, saying that housing is a human right um, and fighting to expand rent stabilization uh, fighting to end cash bail all of these are really popular policies and we consider them to be democratic socialist policies and that was what really resonated with people. Um, and so I think that increasingly um, in the public discourse and, and among the electorate, people um, are, are recognizing democratic socialism as you know, fighting to create the world that we all know is possible in which um, all of us are living in dignity and, and empowered not just to survive, but to thrive in our society. Yeah, um, when I was out there campaigning, uh, you know, I wasn't going out there and saying a vote for Lee Carter is a vote for socialism. Um, you know, I, I just, 
I, I talked about the issues that, that matter to people. You know, I told them my story of why I decided to run for office, and I said, uh, you know, I'm not going to stop fighting until the Commonwealth of Virginia is a place where wealth is actually common, uh, until, uh, you know, everyone can live and work and not have to worry about how they're going to pay the rent, not have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table, not have to worry about whether or not they can see a doctor, and not have to worry about whether or not they're going to be discriminated against. Um, and that really resonated with people. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I had to make the decision to join DSA while I was already running for office. Uh, and I decided when I, you know, when I started paying dues, I was like, you know, if you're to the left of Barry Goldwater, they're going to call you Joseph Stalin anyway, right? <laughs> I didn't know how literal that was going to be. Uh, my opponent sent a, a mailer to 11,000 homes with Marx, Ingalls, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and Carter. Talking about... <laughs> and, and it was just talking about my health care policy. Because, you know, that's what people remember Stalin for, right? The health insurance. <laughs> um, but... You know, I, I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America because I think uh, as an organization it represents, uh, you know, the most powerful uh, force for left politics in the United States. But uh, I do actually take exception with the term democratic socialism. I don't refer to myself as a democratic socialist. I'm a socialist because... <laughs> because if it's not democratic, it's not socialism. And so, uh, you know, part of what I'm doing is using my platform to tell people that, that, you know, the, the two most intentionally misused words in American politics are capitalism and socialism, right? Uh, even, even people that describe themselves as capitalists, that vigorously defend capitalism as an institution, you ask them to define it and they just go, uh, freedom, <laughs> right? You know, they, they don't. People, people can't define what capitalism is. And if you can't define what capitalism is, then of course you can't define what an anti-capitalist movement is. You don't know what we oppose. So uh, a large part of what I'm doing is educating people on what exactly these terms mean, because I had to educate myself on it. That's great. So I was going to ask a very generic question about the relationship between electoral uh, movements and kind of building social movements, but, but obviously your answers and introductions all kind of showed the way in which these campaigns are very much interlinked with things like uh, tenants' rights, the broader struggle for voting rights, and, uh, and so on. So I guess I'll just skip that question. Uh, <laughs> you, could, you could thank me for the 10 minutes of your life uh, after. Um, but... Um, your politicization, a lot of it was through this the 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign. And a lot of us are obviously looking ahead to 2020. We don't know who will be running, but let's say if Bernie does run, what do you, do you think they're, they're the same, will have the same energy? Like, do you think it'll be, um, like, it felt like the beginning of his campaign, things started off slowly because of his low name recognition, because people were still trying to, he wasn't getting media coverage. People were still trying to figure out who he was. But by the middle and end of the primary season, you know, he was winning, and there was, he just kind of ran out of, ran out of time. But, but there was, um, I think, that a really big expansion. Do you, 
Uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you think a 2020 campaign from Sanders would look like? Do you think we should even be, like, is there alternatives to Sanders in that race? Um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think from a, my hope is that yes. I think uh, that right now, you know, the whole reason why I'm, I'm even involved and I know that uh, dozens of other organizers that worked on the Sanders campaign that eventually, you know, helped out Alexandria Ocasio. A lot of us were activate, activated and are continued to energized by the vision that he painted for us. Um, and so my hope is that if he were to launch into a presidential campaign, he would have that same energy. However, the context is different, right? Um, right now we sort of have uh, this, we call it the 2020 caucus, everybody's running to the left. It's not just Bernie, it's people uh, that are sort of these neoliberals disguised as progressives like Kirsten Gillibrand and um, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, um, and Elizabeth Warren, also another progressive woman. Uh, so it, it complicates things, right? He's not, it's not that, you know, when Bernie jumped into the race, right, he, he wanted to stop a coronation of Hillary Clinton. He was the only candidate in that primary. Um, I still think that he is the furthest left candidate out of all of those candidates, right? And I think that is, that's my hope. <laughs> um, but I think we should kind of pay attention to races like Alexandria's, right? And if you guys have watched some of the other midterm congressional elections that we have, uh, going on right now with some of the first Muslim women uh, being elected to Congress with Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. Um, we have Ayanna Presley, who's going to be the first black woman to represent uh, the state of Massachusetts to the congressional delegation to the U.S. Uh, and so people are also thirsty, I think, for not only uh, progressive leadership, but diverse female leadership. And I think that's something important to acknowledge, too. Do you two have any thoughts on 2020? I know you're, everyone on the stage, you three are all under 35, so we can't, we can't draft any of them into, into uh And into don't put that yet. evil on me. Yeah. Like, don't, don't do that. Um, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the American presidential election every four years is, it's the big sexy thing that everyone pays attention to, but, um, you know, ultimately it's not where our most important organizing work is. Um, you know, just throwing it out there, I think if Bernie can get through the primary, he would win the general. Um, I mean, that's, that's the challenge for the left in America. You know, if you're, um, if you're doing any electoral work, the big challenge is getting to a general election uh, and not having uh, a centrist Democrat to play spoiler. Um, but, uh, you know, having, having a president that uh, describes him or herself as a socialist would be great, but um, you know, it's just, it's the cherry on top. It's not where we should be focusing our efforts. I think we need to focus uh, primarily on state and local elections uh, because, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of the barriers to all of our other organizing work uh, that the right put in place over the last 70 years were put in place through the right organizing for electoral uh, politics at the state and local level, right? So that's where you've got all sorts of, you know, horrifying labor laws that restrict what unions can do, that restrict, um, you know, our ability to organize in the workplace. Um, you know, at the federal level, there is some that can be done there. Uh, like we've got uh, Taft-Hartley, which prohibits uh, sympathetic strikes uh, in the United States, 
Um, you know, th there are all sorts of things that we need to do to just lift the barriers to the rest of our organizing work. Uh, but we can't see electoral as the only thing. Like electoral, uh, I feel, should be viewed as sort of a power up for our movement, um, not the be all end all. Yeah, I don't have a, a lot to add about um, the, the possibility of Sanders running again in 2020, but, and, and would echo um, what, what both of you said. Um, I think Bernie doesn't seem to be running out of steam, so I, I, my assessment is I think it's likely that he'll run in 2020. Um, my, I think my concern is that I'm not seeing the institution of the Democratic Party um, changing and and uh, really being self-critical and assessing, you know, the outcome of the 2016 election and uh, rallying forces behind Sanders or um, or a candidate like Sanders in 2020. Um, I'm thinking about when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won her primary. That um, Nancy Pelosi commented on it uh, and said something like it, basically that it was a fluke, that that this is not um, a, a trend whether, within, within the party or otherwise. Um, they, they seem to really be in denial about uh, what the electorate wants um, and about the tides changing. And that concerns me uh, when, when we're talking about the potential for a democratic socialist Sanders or otherwise winning a, a Democratic primary. So you, you mentioned the, the question of the Democratic Party, and I guess this, this would be the last question for Q&A, but I think it might be worth introducing for an international audience a bit of the controversy or the debate uh, around the Democratic Party and maybe having you three briefly um, kind of say what, where, where your strategy fits in. So basically the Democratic Party the U.S. doesn't really have a party system like you have almost anywhere else um, in the world. I became a Democrat when I was 18. Um, I, I registered as a Democrat when I was 18. I'd been a socialist since I was like 14 or, or 15. Um, you know, uh, so by then, of course, I was a grizzled veteran of the, the movement. Uh, I thought I knew you know, just about anything. Um, but the way I became a Democrat was I got my driver's license for the first time, and at the DMV, you check, do you want to register to vote? Of course, it's a question because they want you to just skip that part of the, the, the questionnaire because they don't actually want you to vote. Uh, so you have to check, yes, affirmatively state you want to be registered to vote. Uh, then the next check is, do you want to register in a, uh, as a Democrat, as a Republican, as an Independent, as a, as a Green? I registered as a Democrat. Because if I wanted to vote for candidates in New York like Julia, uh, I had to do it in the Democratic Party. The only competitive elections were these Democratic Party primaries. And I didn't want to just skip, you know, voting, even if the options back then were not, were not very good. Um, since then, I've spent most of the last 10 years attacking the Democratic Party and its leaderships. Um, they cannot censor me. They can't expel me. They, they have no relationship to me because even though I vote in most Democratic Party primaries, I do so... Um, uh, through the state, not the party. In other words, I go to state-run elections uh, every November or every September. Like yours was on a Thursday. Like they, they, again, they move around the dates partially because you know low turnout is good for, for the elite. Um, 
And part of this diffusion means that nobody has ever paid dues to the Democratic Party. No one has ever been a member of the Democratic Party. Instead, we're just registered voters who vote in certain primaries. And that has led a lot of people to believe that these are just ballot lines. These are empty vessels that we could just take over. And there's a few different perspectives on the left. The first one's the old perspective of you know, people on the far left who, for years, uh, like, uh, there's, there's been groups that used to do kind of a rhyming uh, slogan that explains their position, which is um, say no to the elephant, no to the ass, so the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, um, build a party of the working class. Uh, so of course, in principle, that sounds like a great idea, but it's kind of been a dead end. So that's a third party break approach. Um, then there's an approach of saying, the Democratic Party is largely a ballot line. We could use the primary process, elect officials, take over the party, and realign it further to the left, which is, I guess, probably the, the um, approach favored by a lot of justice Democrats. And a lot of the gains recently in elections have been with that approach. And I guess a third approach would be the idea favored by some of these new DSA candidates and others, which is we're going to use the Democratic Party primary processes to get a platform to talk about our ideas, and we're going to try to develop like a common point of principles, like things we agree with. And we're going to try to, to connect candidates together and hold them accountable to a broader movement, to a real membership organization, to maybe in the future affiliated unions, so essentially creating a party, you know, um, where there, there is no party. Uh, and I guess those are the three main approaches. And I, I'm just wondering if the three of you could comment on what your perspective is on the, I, I guess, on this debate, on the strategy um, kind of debate we've been having the U.S. left over the last couple of years. Um, so the question of if, if we can take it over, and I, I guess I look at it as can we transform it? And I think the sort of second point and the third point are kind of interconnected. I don't think that you can take it over without doing this massive overhaul, which essentially does create a new party, except you're kind of taking over the, how you actually get there, right? Um, and I think the sort of two-party paradigm model, uh, which is a current American political system, just makes it really, really hard. And you know, for myself and our organization, a lot of us, we, we agree and we champion a lot of you know, even the same platform as someone like the Green Party, it's just been massively difficult to run that at a, na uh, at a national level, right? And so I just see that um, at the end of the day, we want this sort of vision of America, right? Where everybody has healthcare, everybody has food on the table, um, everybody uh, that wants to work can work, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of this progressive vision of, of where we wanna go. Uh, and we need to do that as soon as possible because we have no time, right? Uh, and so the fastest way uh, that we see at Justice Democrats to do that is by just using it as a vehicle to get people into office. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a democratic socialist. Uh, and with her, and I think alongside, she's also a Justice Democrat, uh, they're movement candidates. She's running alongside um, hundreds of other candidates, at this point, now that we're past the primaries, we have about 23 going into the general election that are running on the same platform. Uh, but it's not just one, right? Every time she gets on the national stage, she's talking about our platform, but she's also talking about the other candidates 
Uh, and like I mentioned before, we're seeing uh, candidates like Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley and sort of all of these other really, really exciting new diverse female leaders sort of emerging out of this movement. Uh, and so although it's a slow process in the US, we don't have sort of a parliamentary uh, system, a very democratic system, unfortunately. Um, we do have the ability to put candidates like her on the national platform and shift the conversation through competitive primaries. And so that's absolutely a strategy that we're going to continue to use, especially in 2020. And I think 2019 is really important for some of these new legislators to continue to build up that platform. And luckily we're all young, so we know how to use the internet. <laughs> and uh, we can reach millions of people, right? We saw uh, during the Bernie campaign, right? He didn't win, but he made single payer part of the national conversation in the United States. And right now you have uh, Alexandria and organizations like ours that are calling for the abolishment of uh, immigrations and customs enforcement. We're talking about a federal jobs guarantee. Um, uh, Tuition-free public colleges actually, the cancellation of student debt, which were you know, over easily two trillion at this point in the US. So it's, it's slow um, just in the sense of that sometimes these electoral uh, wins don't necessarily translate to actually having a seat at power, but us just being there is so absolutely critical. Um, and again, I just emphasize the sense of urgency of needing to address things like climate change and our pending economic crisis that's going to happen again. And I think that's why we're so focused on the federal level in order to turn these things around as soon as we possibly can uh, before it's too late. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is one of the defining questions of, of the left in America uh, today is, you know, first of all, do we participate in electoral politics? And second, how, uh, you know, if, if we're going to, how do we do it? Um, and I think, uh, you know, for, for an international audience here, one of, the, one of the really important things to understand is that, um, you know, America's ballot access laws are the most restrictive in the world. Um, you know, we have a first-past-the-post uh, ballot system that naturally breeds a, a stagnant two-party uh, system where you just get this pendulum swing between, um, you know, pro-business Republicans that don't care if your kids can eat and pro-business Democrats that at least say they care that your kids can eat. Um, and, you know, you just keep going back and forth. Like, people are dissatisfied with the Republicans, they vote for the Democrats in a wave. The Democrats are in for a while, people get dissatisfied with them, they vote for the Republicans in a wave. Just back and forth and back and forth. Um, but, you know, that's, it, it's a consequence of our ballot access laws and, and the way that we actually count the votes. Um, so I think that, that ballot reform and ballot access reform need to be very important parts of our, of our movement um, to enable the kind of electoral politics that, that will really uh, you know, amplify the message of, of working class movements. Um, because you know, un unlike a parliamentary system, in, in, in a parliamentary system, you know, everybody, you go to the polls, you vote for whatever party you think best aligns with your values, and then you know, after the votes are tallied, the seats are assigned, and the parties come together and form a governing coalition if, if none of them have a majority, right? But in the US, each individual candidate is forming their coalition before the election. 
right? So, um, you know, there's, there's nothing in the Democratic Party's bylaws that says it's explicitly a capitalist party. It's not a socialist party either. It's just sort of, it's there. Uh, you know, the only thing the only thing required to be a member of the Democratic Party is you have to believe in the values of the Democratic Party. But what the hell are they? So, um, so you know, I, I am a member of the Democratic Party as well as a member of Democratic Socialists of America, which is an issue organization, not a political party. Um, and my coalition was a coalition of socialists and trade unionists and environmentalists and um, you know folks that are that are involved in uh, social struggle for for social justice um, and uh, I was able to put that coalition together because I had that Democratic Party's ballot line um, so you know I think that is at least for right now that's that's exactly how we're going to see electoral success is by um, by entering into the Democratic Party and saying, we're here, we are a force that you must reckon with. Uh, in fact, just step out of the way and let us lead because we're the only ones that can beat the far right. Yeah, I think on the, on the question of our relationship as socialists to the Democratic Party, it's really a question of what are our long-term goals? Um, and, and, you know, to me, first and foremost, it's to empower the working class, to take back what has been stolen from us by the, the ultra-rich, by the 1%, um, and also to, uh, I mean, these are long-term goals, but <laughs> to dismantle capitalism. <laughs> um, like, we, we actually... And so I, I think we have to consider that when we're talking about what our relationship is with the Democratic Party. Um, I ran as a Democrat. Uh, the vast, vast majority of registered voters in my district, in my overwhelmingly working class district, are, are registered Democrats. And so if I ever wanted to uh, represent them and if I want um, our movement to gain power, then I, it was strategic and necessary for me to run on the Democratic Party line. Um, I don't think that this is, is like a strategy that should be uh, universally applied in, in the U.S. Uh, there are obviously there are other cities and other places where uh, it you can run as a socialist or at least as a as a third party candidate and run a completely viable campaign and and that's that's great because um, I think you know the two party system de facto uh, disenfranchises a lot of people. And uh, as a socialist, I don't, I don't want to perpetuate that. Uh, but yeah, I think it was, it, for me, it's, it's what is strategic because, um, you know, as Alex mentioned, our, our political parties in the US are totally different. Um, they, no one really has like this um, affinity for, for the party. You just, you register uh, and, and can vote as that party in primaries, um, or in my case, you know, you run on, on the party line, but, but uh, it, yeah, it's, it's not a membership organization. It's not a, a grassroots organization. Um, and so we shouldn't, I, I guess, I think that it could be a secondary goal to reform the Democratic Party, but it shouldn't be our primary goal. Um, 
in, in my opinion. I think that uh, what we really want is, you know, to, through some means, and it could be creating an, another party, right? A truly working class grassroots party, um, but doing that, you know, simultaneous with the electoral work we're doing um, and, and the work outside of electoral politics that we're doing to, to build um, a working class movement and a socialist movement. So yeah, it's much, much more complicated in the US, partially because we could have had a labor party in the 1890s, or we could have had a labor party in the 1920s maybe. Even by the 30s, it was probably too late. So we're living in this alternative reality where imagine where you were all disgruntled socialists trying to organize in like the liberals. You know, I mean, this is, this could have happened, right? Um, like defeats, it's almost like random, right? If you lost key battles in the formation of the labor party, those, and then those defeats were kind of cumulative and there was never a labor party. You know, this could have been an alternative, you know, reality, but luckily for you, it is not. Um, so we're gonna take some, some questions um, and yeah, everyone raise your hands. I'll try to uh, keep track of who had their hands up and try to get to you, obviously. I'll try to get to everyone. How about we start in the, the front with you? So yeah, uh, I'm from the Labour Club at Imperial College London. I had a question for you guys, especially from New York, about the outcome of the gubernatorial primary, and sort of specifically how, at the state level, when sort of the establishment side of the party is in the ascendancy, as you know, in certain CLPs and in this country, the establishment side of the Labour Party is in the ascendancy, what can be done to, to sort of win in those races? Um, I question what you say when you say that we've had it easy. We haven't had it easy. I mean, <laughs> you could say maybe in the 60s, maybe in the 60s it was easy, or 1945, uh, there was an opportunity, but there has been no opportunity to have somebody like Jeremy Corbyn for, I don't know, 40 years. Any left candidate has been knocked down, and it's just a series of fortunate coincidences. The one person, one vote, which was meant to cull the unions. So I think that maybe you're looking at, maybe you're thinking of Europe more because we have a two-party system here. It's basically Labour or Conservative. And you need, and also I would say, I, I actually agree with you, so I can't remember your name, but I agree with you that you need to fight through the major party and you will have an opportunity. You had an opportunity with Bernie Sanders. We have an opportunity once in a lifetime with Jeremy Corbyn. So, yeah, maybe look at how you think that we got where we got to. I don't think you can't get to where we got to. So, okay. Hiya. Right. Um, two things. Firstly, just how difficult is it to be a socialist in America? And do you get any overt or covert pressure from your so-called security forces. And um, America's got a military bases in about 200 countries in the world. 
what do the people of America think of that? Yeah, um, so I want to address that, that last one first, um, you know, what it's like being a socialist in the United States. Um, yeah, we, we do still face uh, some fairly significant state repression. Um, they're not, you know, targeting us for raids anymore, which is nice. Uh, but, you know, whenever, whenever there's a conflict uh, with fascists, you know, socialists show up and we put our bodies on the line and we stand in between the fascists and the people of whatever community they're descending upon. And the police, every single time, every single time the police have their backs to the fascists. That's just a fact. I mean, you can look at any, any video, any picture of any conflict between the left and the extreme right in the United States and the police are always combative with us and never as combative as they should be with the fascists. Um, so, you know, there still, is, there still is an element of state repression there. It is not as significant as it used to be, uh, but it's definitely still there. Um, as to uh, the question of, you know, what Americans think of, of how many military bases we have overseas, I think this is a question of uh, imperialism. Uh, frankly, most of the American public just doesn't even know, um, which is amazing. Uh, I mean, you have members of Congress that can't even get a straight answer from the Department of Defense on how many military bases we have, right? I mean, it's somewhere over 900, but is it 1,000? Is it 1,200? Is it 1,500? Like, no one really knows. Um, I mean, even, even the people who are voting for these things don't even know how many we have. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that um, the, the structure of uh, American foreign policy um, is really set up to take, uh, you know, poor and working class people uh, from, from uh, impoverished areas in the United States, like, I mean, I'm former military, right? You know, places like where I grew up, um, entice them into, into enlisting in the military and then, and then taking their best intentions and, and stealing that time of service they volunteered for away from them, right? Stealing that away from them with a foreign policy that doesn't value human life, with a foreign policy that puts control of the global south above uh, human dignity. And we absolutely cannot continue that, but a large part of, of combating that is educating the American public on it because people just don't know that it's happening. Yeah. Um, well, actually, the first question couldn't. Uh, I would love to, to hear it again, uh, the, the one that was specifically addressed to New York. If, if I heard you correctly, I think it was how do you basically go up against the New York political machine, especially looking at races like Cynthia Nixon's. Is that, yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, what Cynthia Nixon did in, in challenging Governor Cuomo, I think, was really inspiring and, and significant despite her loss. Um, I... 
ran against a machine Democrat, someone who really was, whose entire career was owed to, political career was owed to the, um, the Kings County, the Brooklyn Democratic uh, County machine, um, uh, or at least the vestiges of a machine. Uh, he was a 16-year incumbent, um, and he used all, you know, every every tactic possible to try to um, to to make sure that not only that I wouldn't win the election, but actually that voters wouldn't even have a choice. Um, what they typically do, they'll they'll challenge your petition signatures um, as part of part of the process for running for office. We have to gather a certain number, like a thousand petition signatures from, um, in my case, from registered Democrats. Um, we actually got, gathered over 4,000 signatures in our petitioning process. Um, but, uh, so, so he didn't try to throw me off the ballot on the grounds of petition signatures, but he, uh, my opponent tried to throw me off the ballot on like a baseless claim um, of, of not qualifying for residency, the residency requirement. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a tactic to just try to get me to drop out of the race so that it won't be a competitive election, that, that voters won't have a choice. Um, ultimately, he, he appealed, he, he did everything he could to, to um, you know, try to get me thrown off the ballot on the basis of residency. And, and I mention this because in the, in the trial, um, Actually, the person who was the chair of the Democratic County Committee in in Brooklyn was present and helping, just actively, overtly helping my opponent's lawyer. Um, so that's that's like what we're what we're dealing with when it's when when we're facing um, a machine candidate, somebody who's backed by the by the party establishment. Uh, nonetheless, we prevailed and and got 59% of the vote and saw unprecedented um, voter turnout, um, I, I think that that's actually the key. It's, it's you wanna engage as many people as possible who are, uh, as a result of the machine, excluded you know, from, from the electoral process from, and then therefore from the legislative process. Um, we wanna bring as many of those people in as possible, um, makes for a more Democratic election, of course, um, and uh, you know, vastly increases turnout, so so that um, you know Im improves our our odds of getting elected, um, and and simultaneously achieves our goal of of engaging as many people in the political process as possible. Um, and that's, I mean, in, in my experience, that's how that's how you defeat the machine. Was it was it more of a comment or is it a question? I mean I I think basically the difference is in the US we don't even have a membership organization. So the difference being you could have a leadership race and you could actually get Jeremy elected uh, and have one thing to, to galvanize, then now you have the struggle of actually fixing, you know, using that base to reform the rest of the party. In the US without actually having a membership party, without having things like CLPs and whatnot, it's very hard to even see what structures we're supposed to be taking over. And that's what makes it, I think, even more difficult. Yeah. And I just really quickly want to address uh, your question of sort of how do you go up against the New York machine? Because 
Um, I, th I think what happened here in 2018 electorally in New York was so interesting. We had Cynthia Nixon. We also had Zephyr T. Like we had Working Families Party did an amazing job of supporting like a whole slate of candidates uh, statewide, right? Um, and Alexandria, you know, even what's interesting about her opponent was that her opponent was actually the Queen's party boss and so actually chose had a say in his own endorsement and had massive influence in actually funding all of, you know, all of these institutions alongside Andrew Cuomo. Um, and I think just fundamentally through every election where I think as progressives, as democratic socialists, we're going to be outspent, right? And, and I think one difference uh, that's really unique in America is we have this horse race, we have this two-party system and massive millions and millions amounts of money going into not just national federal races, but races like Julia's and races like uh, Cynthia Nixon's. And uh, I think the only way to defeat uh, big money is through big organizing and massively mobilizing uh, your neighbors and your community members uh, and utilizing some of the most effective digital tools possible. And I think that's, that's how we win, is not only leaning into our integrity and running on our values and uh, the vision of America that we know the majority of Americans support, uh, but it's also uh, doing the work, right? Like not just uh, writing checks to go on TV, uh, all of that, is, is important, but it's more important, I think, to reach as many uh, people that are going to be your voters. And actually, what, and what we did in Alexandria's race, uh, in addition to identifying, was bring new people in, right? Bring young people in. And we still, as a Democratic Party, have a lot of work to do there because we've abandoned uh, communities of color, um, women, and young people for a really long time. And so there's nothing uh, I think that we can do that is more important than organizing our communities. So we'll take a couple more, more questions, maybe from um, uh, those, uh, just, uh, that, those three people right there. So I'm trying to avoid the walking. We won't get to every question. I'll, I'll try to end five minutes early so maybe you get a chance to talk to the speakers for a few minutes before everyone has to clear out for the next event. Um, so. AJ Mahal came to the Young Labour conference yesterday um, and I heard him speak and he was, he was talking about how he, he wants to form a Labour party in the US and you were talking earlier about how it was kind of a missed opportunity in the 1800s and 1920s, but why not now? I mean, capitalism is in a crisis, everybody's dissatisfied with, well, a lot of people are dissatisfied with the two main parties. Why not make your own version of a Labour party? I think it would appeal to a lot of people like, a lot of the Trump supporters, the white working class Trump supporters, I think they would be, they could be turned on by a labor, their own version of a Labour Party, um, as well as women, working people, because instead of having ethnic divides or whatever, you have a class divide, and everyone can relate more to that because we're all working class. If you're not living off the land, if you're not an aristocrat or Hillary Clinton, you are working class. So wh why not do it? So I, I'm going to lean into, I think what I said before, personally for me, is that the sense of urgency to change things as quickly as possible is right now. Um, and unfortunately, though I completely support the efforts, and we've even championed some of the policies and the ways uh, that third parties in the United States have existed before, and they can exist at the federal level, they just haven't been able to do it at a national level. 
Um, and when we have millions of people not only suffering but dying because of a healthcare system that is uh, completely broken, um, it's just the fastest way to get things done. And you know, for the, uh, in my opinion, I think, I think class and race do go hand in hand because I think people's experiences are absolutely important. They're frames of references of how they view the world, especially. Um, when you've been sort of uh, not only having this economic barrier but this racial barrier as well, uh, at least in my experience, uh, is, is largely important. Hi, um, so I'm a member of DSA in San Francisco and like a lot of people in DSA, I found DSA through Twitter. Um, Twitter's been really cool because I can follow people like y'all. Uh, however, uh, the discourse on Twitter is just garbage. People treat each other terribly. Uh, to the point where people I've met here have said like, oh, DSA, I followed it on Twitter. Uh, it seems very divided. Uh, it seems like very, the American left is very divided. So my question is, first, is the American left actually that divided or do we have a terrible discourse and do we have any way out of uh, the discourse problem on Twitter? Um, yeah, thank you all for speaking. Um, as an American who's grown up uh, and lived all my life in Europe. It's really inspiring to see. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the, the rise of the far right, and I really appreciate what um, Lee was saying about how uh, the security apparatus constantly will defend um, far right uh, protesters and stuff. Um, but I just wanted to ask if you could expand a bit more on how the, the left should be reacting to the rise of the far right and what can be done on a local level and also an international level? Are any of you working with the Poor People's Campaign that by the Reverend William Barber in the US? Hi, um, this is mainly a question for Julia, but if the other panelists also want to weigh in, that would be great. Um, I'm from the Decrim Now campaign, which you've already endorsed, and we're really grateful. Uh, we're a campaign for sex worker rights and safety and decriminalization. And we were so um, happy and inspired to see you run on a platform of the decriminalization of sex work and to not hide from that and to really like make it part of your platform. Um, and we just wondered, uh, if you wanted to speak a little bit about the importance of decriminalization and why that should be part of a platform for the left. All right, uh, so I want to tackle a couple of questions from over here. Um, so first of all, uh, is the left really that divided in America? Um, you put a hundred American socialists in a room, you're gonna have a hundred new socialist parties in, in two hours or less. Um, I mean, it's just the nature of the left, right? I mean, we, we uh, this has been a constant struggle for us for hundreds of years. We give in to sectarian infighting um, and, and we tear ourselves apart. I mean, we always have um, and we need to resist that urge. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that, that we um, are are standing in solidarity with those of other leftist tendencies um, 
to combat the far right. This gets into to your question. Uh, and I, I use the term combat the far right very intentionally, right? I mean, uh, when, when you're looking at fascists, it's, it's important to understand that fascists don't organize because they like the sound of their own voices. They organize with a goal in mind, and that goal is violence. So, uh, you know, uh, mutual aid and community defense is absolutely something that we should be prioritizing on the left. You know, we need to, to work together across sectarian lines, across organizational lines, um, and make sure that when the fascists come to town, they just see a wall of humanity staring them down everywhere they go, every street they turn down, every corner, every park. They need to know that they cannot assemble anywhere without seeing us standing in opposition. I'll um, speak to the, the question on decriminalizing sex work. Um, and thank you, thank you for asking that. I'm really, really excited about, about Labor's campaign on this. Um, uh, and to first speak to the significance of it uh, locally, where, where I was just elected, um, and then in, in the broader movement, um, I was approached during my campaign by um, a sex worker advocate about uh, more explicitly advocating for sex workers and incorporating it into my platform. Uh, one of the biggest demands, you know, it's, it's a series of policies, the goal ultimately being full de decriminalization uh, in New York. Um, but, but it's a, a set of several policies. There's a charge in New York uh, referred to as loitering for the purpose of prostitution. Um, it has a devastating effect on, on our communities. 94% of people who are, um, who are charged with this are black women. Um, in the, um, the neighborhoods in, in my district, and maybe this will be meaningless, but it's, it's North Brooklyn, includes um, Bushwick, where I live, and, and East New York. These neighborhoods have the highest rate in the entire city, in all of New York City, um, of people being charged with, with this offense. Um, and, and yeah, it has a devastating impact on people um, and is clearly just deeply discriminatory. Uh, um, you know, sex work is work. Sex workers' rights are, are human rights, are workers' rights. Um, as socialists, you know, our, again, a main goal needs to be to empower the working class um, and, and to unite the working class. And in order to do that, we need to recognize the, the labor of sex workers. Um, and as people who actually, whose, whose labor is, of course, undervalued. Um, and yeah, so, so I had an advocate approach me about it um, in order to incorporate it more clearly into my platform. And um, people, I think, expected there to be more backlash about it. You know, this is, again, in, in the same way that running openly as a socialist, there was this perception that it, it was like really sensational, but um, this is, you know, voters, yeah, the, the electorate in my district, everyone, it was very clear to them, I think, that 
um, that we need to, if not fully decriminalize sex work, which of course I support, but maybe people still need to come around to, um, they recognize the harm that, uh, that so harshly criminalizing sex work um, is having on our communities. Um, I really hope that people will see through my campaign and our, and our victory um, and through other candidates uh, as well championing this, that um, not only is it viable, but it's just the right thing to do. Uh, and we... <laughs> Um, it's it's the right thing to do, and anybody who is running as a socialist um, should should take this up as as an issue and and in order to to normalize it um, and and you know further support the movement for decriminalization internationally. Uh, to briefly comment on, um, I think, the woman who brought up the Poor People's Campaign, um, I'm, I'm not, unfortunately, not as tapped into that movement, but Reverend Barber is an absolute uh, force on, on the left in, in American uh, movement building and is basically picking up uh, where Martin Luther King Jr. left off um, right before he died, uh, uniting economic, racial, social justice movements um, across America and uh, starting a movement to sort of do this moral revival um, back in the United States. So I don't know if you guys have as, as much any more information on it, but to my understanding, that's what it is. And I know Alexandria um, participated in it, and I know lots of um, people throughout the U.S. do. So. Well. Let's have a round of applause for our speakers. They came a long way and they did great. You know, there's, there's the old joke about, um, you know, when Americans go abroad, we often have to pretend to be Canadians because we don't want to be associated with US foreign policy, though. Honestly, Canada's kind of an imperialist power, too. But uh, I now feel more proud to be uh, by accident of birth, born in, in the United States by just being, you know, uh, on this on the stage with, with these three great uh, organizers and thinkers, and um, I hope you get a chance to um, to chat with them briefly. We do have to clear out. Um, thanks to the World Transform organizers who are uh, extremely competent and running around constantly, partially because I'm always adding logistical challenges to them. Um, we do have Jackman's available for sale. Those uh, issues are $5 each. We have Tribune, a magazine for sale, which just relaunched. Uh, subscriptions are 20 pounds. Uh, actually, the Jackman's are five pounds. If you don't have US currency, it's okay. So just five pounds. Uh, all at that table, uh, please grab a copy. We also have an event uh, tonight, uh, right here, I believe, at 7.30 with John Luke Mélenchon from uh, France and Samy. And with uh, John Trickett, it should be very good. I imagine it'll be very packed, so try to get here, uh, here early. All right, thank you.